Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Magical Musings. Uh, I am Joy, as you know, and Brian's on the other end of the line, as always. Okay, folks. All right, and we've got a special guest today. Uh, I know we've been promising it for a while, um, but we've got Ellen Everett Hopman on the line with us, and she's going to be talking to us about the stuff that she's doing. So this is episode 27. It's going to mostly be about herbalism, and we're going to jump into it. So grab uh, your cookies and tea and milk and whatever else you need to get and settle in with us, okay? All right, so hi, Ellen. How are you doing today? Hi. It's... I'm, I'm sitting here in beautiful western Massachusetts, where the leaves are turning now. We're almost at the height of the, of the leaf season, and the trees are turning orange and red and gold, and it's just beautiful. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It sounds absolutely fantastic, especially with salmon coming up. Yep. <laughs> it's classic New England. <laughs> that yeah, that seems to me the the sort of main attention grabber for people who travel over that way. I mean, it seems like fall is probably the best time to go to New England if you're ever going. Tis true. So all right, okay, go ahead, Brian. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, um, Ellen, why don't you provide us a, a bit of a introduction to who you are, where you've been, and what you're doing now. Oh, well, that's a long story, goodness. Um, I have tons of time, so feel free. <laughs> uh, who am I? That's what I'm trying to find out. I've dedicated my life to figuring that out. Um, I was born in Austria, of all places, and uh, Salzburg. And I came to the States when I was about two, and I lived went back to Europe and grew up there and lived in Germany, um, went back to Austria briefly, lived in Spain, um, and I've also traveled extensively in Great Britain, Ireland, Scotland, places like that. I do have Scottish ancestry through my mother, um, and uh, I write books. Apparently that's what I do. I'm an herbalist. Um, I live in the woods. I live in an oak forest in western Mass. And on top of a mountain, I understand, right? On top of a mountain, yeah. People who've read my blog should know that by now because I'm always <laughs> talking about what's happening on the mountain. Uh, um, we have, have moose, bear, wild turkeys, foxes, what else, coyotes, koi wolves, and we think possibly wolves. I saw something that I swear looked like a, um, a reindeer. It, it did not a look reindeer? like a moose. Yeah, well, it didn't look like a moose, and it didn't look like a deer. We had deer. So I couldn't figure out what the heck it was, but it was crossing the road. Caribou, maybe? Caribou, yeah, that's what it is. It looked like a young caribou. And I said, what the heck? But, (laughs) But, you know, there's more trees now here than there were before the white people got here um, because – you know, the Native Americans would burn the underbrush. And so when the white people first came here, or at least when the English came here, they said, oh, it looks like a giant park. You know, lots of grass and, and just a few huge trees. But now the place is just solid trees uh, all the way up to Canada. So anything right. can wow. come down, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I've seen, well, I've had bears in my entranceway. I've had white, a white skunk. Um, you know, it's it's quite 
an interesting <laughs> place. And I do have a blog on my website, and every month I try to give a, a little report of any animal sightings and, you know, what's happening with the plants. And Oh, that sounds fantastic. What is the, the, the blog web address for everybody? Um, well, my name is Ellen Everett Hopman. That's E-L-L-E-N-E, V as in Victor, E-R-T, Everett. Uh, Hopman, H-O-P as in Paul, M-A-N, EllenEverettHopman.com. And if you go there, um, my blog only comes out once a month because I have a lot of uh, archaeology in there. Um, that's one of my passions. And um, I have herbal information, archaeology, nature news, uh, some politics and ethics, and religion news, and pagan news, and druid news, a lot of links, um, but it only comes out once a month, and you'll, if you look at it, you'll see why, because there's, you know, probably 50 or more links in each blog, but I always start by talking about what's happening here in my life, and, uh, and about my books, and the, the latest books, and what's happening, and classes that I'm teaching, and so on. Cool. Do you have uh, links to, like, your Tumblr and um, Facebook pages as well? Well, I am on Facebook. If you just put in Ellen Everett Hopman, I have a, a, a couple of uh, web, well, what are they called, Facebook groups that I run, um, and I have an author page, which uh, you can go to and so on. So, And I also have Twitter, of course, if you put Ellen Everett Hopman. <laughs> I have Twitter, and you know I'm connected. Well, everybody's connected these days. I mean, you know, it's important. It's almost as important as a phone number these days. Yeah, I mean, half the time people don't even bother calling anymore. They just they send you an email. So. Mhm. Mm well, that's how I got in con how we got in contact with you to to do this was through Facebook. That's so. right. Yeah. All right, so um, I figure we can, you know, talk about herbalism for a little while since that is the main thrust of the show. And since Brian tends to be the herbalism expert, and I follow recipes and not always that well, well I'll let him mostly take over. Actually, what what kind of occurred to me too? Um, the first time that we tried to record the show, um, in your sort of introduction, um, as far as your influences, Ellen, uh, you mentioned a couple of Christian saints that I personally find really fascinating, um, Francis and Hildegard. Um, was there a particular, like, draw that you found in Hildegard's work that, that inspired you, or is is it just her general work overall? Well, yeah, Matthew Fox wrote a great book. It's called The Illuminations of Hildegard of Bingen, if anybody gets their hands on it. Matthew Fox is, uh, I don't know if he's, a, I don't think he's a Catholic priest anymore. He was a Catholic priest, and he got excommunicated. Um, and then I think he went on to become an, something else, maybe an Episcopalian, I'm not sure. But um, he he's a great proponent of creation spirituality and a great fan of Hildegard of Bingen. And Hildegard of Bingen was a student of St. Francis of Assisi, as it turns out, uh, he he was her either her direct teacher or her greatest influence. Um, so there's a direct line there, and, and Hildegard and Saint Francis both uh, were very focused on creation spirituality, which is finding the divine 
within the sun, the moon, the fire, the water. You know, Francis used to go out and talk to wolves. He would he would preach to the wolves and he and the birds. You know, and Hildegard. If you if you see that book, um, Hildegard, her illuminations are paintings that she commissioned, which are incredibly Native American, which is really weird because. She was what, 12th century or in the 12th? Yeah, somewhere around there. 13th century, yeah, um, which is supposedly before anybody came to America, you know. But her illuminations are very Native American, which is bizarre. <laughs> well, they <laughs> do. Just... Sorry, I mean, it it occurs to me that they do seem to focus on sort of a, a mandala four directions orientation, as exactly. far as I recall. Right, and um, but I, I guess a lot of indigenous. I mean, I suppose in Iceland, for example, you see that uh, that cross um, on the drums. You know, mm. in ancient Nordic True. traditions, you see that the cross of the four directions. But it's more than that. I mean, she has images of baskets and all kinds of things. It's worth looking at that book. But um, anyway, I lived in a Franciscan community in Italy for a while. When I was a graduate student, I was studying art history. And um, I, I, I was a straight-A student. And so they just one day they said, oh, you want a scholarship? And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they sent me to, to Rome. Um, but me being me, um, you know, if, any, if anybody knows me, they know this. But... I'm I'm always thinking mystically. That's just the way I am. So I had a really hard time doing just hard academic research in the Herziana Library, which you know is in the Vatican Library and so on. I was I was doing this hardcore research, but pretty soon I felt this need, you know, to go out in the country. So I went to Assisi um, and. I wanted to look at the, my thought was to go see the frescoes uh, of Giotto in the cathedral there. And so um, I went into the cathedral, and um, I was looking at these frescoes, and they, they show the life of St. Francis, but there's a lot of gold leaf all over the place. And I mm -hmm. thought, hmm, that doesn't, <laughs> somehow that didn't feel right to me. I thought it was a little incongruous because, St. Francis's whole thing was about being extremely poor, you know, and, yeah, and living a very simple life. So so there was a monk there. There was this little Franciscan monk dressed in the brown robes. And I walked up to him, and I, I taught myself to speak Italian, by the way. Um, I speak Spanish, wow. so I taught myself Italian. So I went up to him, and I spoke to him in Italian. And I said, these paintings are very interesting, but I want to know how St. Francis really lived how can I find out about that? And so he said, um, go to San Maceo. And I said, what's that? And he said, don't ask any questions, just go. It's down the road <laughs> on the right. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I went down the road, and then I saw this little sign. It was a little wooden sign, hand-painted. It said San Maceo. So there was a muddy path. It was just dirt. And uh, through these bushes, and I followed the path, and there were all these young people. I mean, I was a student, so they were my age. All these young people kind of lounging around on the ground, and they were all German. If anyone's traveled in Europe, you know that most of the tourists are Germans. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I went up to them. I also speak German, obviously. 
And so I said, wow. what is this place? And they said, oh, have you come here to stay? And I said, gee, I don't know. <laughs> you know? And then, <laughs> um, so I was on a vision quest, basically. And, um, and it, I ended up staying there for just two weeks. Um, and the, it was a, a genuine Franciscan community in the old style, meaning that you slept on um, straw mattresses. There was only cold water. There was no hot water. And um, you bake, everybody baked bread, and there were animals wandering in and out of all the buildings. The animals had absolute freedom. So you'd be sitting down to a meal, and the chickens and the ducks would be on the floor, on the table, you know. And actually, in old Celtic times, that's how it was. People kept chickens in the house. Um, uh-huh, because you've got to keep them safe from the wolves. And exactly, stuff. and they had little shelves up near the roof just for the chickens. That's If you go into very old <clears throat> Irish roundhouses, you'll see that. Anyway, so that's uh, that's what I did for about two weeks. Um, and then I went back to Rome and settled with the landlord and put my stuff in storage and came back to the community for a little bit longer. Um, and then I did have a, well, the community was run so that you had mass. I mean, my memory's fading a little bit, but I believe we had mass at dark at dawn, and then we had mass again at midday and maybe in the evening. It was, like, really intense. But on Wednesdays, uh, you were fa- everybody was supposed to fast every Wednesday. So on Wednesdays, um, all you were allowed to do was drink herbal tea or water and no food. Huh. And then you went out into the, it was called wandering in the desert or wandering in the wilderness. And you would just take off with no thought, no intention about what you were going to do. You would just go. And the idea this is walkabout. Yeah, walkabout, <laughs> exactly, with the, with the idea that God would take you wherever it was you were supposed to go. So um, I just kept walking, and I ended up on top of this mountain, Mount Subasio, which actually is a mountain where St. Francis used to hang out. Um, mm-hmm. And I got above the tree line. It was nothing but grass up there. And uh, a big storm came, and there was thunder and lightning, and... and I remember there was snow because when I was coming down the hill, I had snow caked on my shoulders. And um, I there was nothing up there except one little tiny pine tree. So I was scared, so I wrapped myself around the pine tree, which is yeah. probably... Dumb. I would be a little scared, too. I mean, lightning and thunder and everything and on top snow. of the mountain. Yeah, it was thunder. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, when it, when it passed, I came down the hill singing at the top of my lungs glad to be alive, and I got down <laughs> to the bottom of the hill, and there's this chapel that St. Francis built with his own hands, um, which is right across the street from San Damiano, but anyway, there's this little chapel, and I went in there, and it was a um, pre-Gothic, uh, you know, 12th century pre-Gothic chapel, so it didn't have the big stained glass windows, it was very dark in there. And I went in there, and I sat down in the dark, and I was soaking wet, and I heard this voice, and it said, um, everything you've been doing up until now has been for status and intellect and to please your parents. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be working with plants. Now, keep in wow. mind, I, so that's... I, had been in, I was an art history student. <laughs> I was, I was so that's where be... you got... Sorry? Yeah, uh, 
I was just asking, that's where you got your start, uh, the idea to start working with the herbals and yes, everything? Yes, that's where it happened. And as soon as, wow. as soon as I heard that voice, I knew it was absolutely correct. I knew that it was right because, you know, when I was sitting in the libraries doing my research, I felt like I was in prison. And then the minute I would go outside and sit on the ground or under a tree or with a plant, I felt like I was alive and I was, you know, with my friends. I never felt, I never feel lonely if I'm in the woods because I'm surrounded, you know, I'm surrounded by life. Oh, wow. And that's how it's, I always felt that way. And then, but I didn't realize until I heard that voice. And then I said, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what I'm going to be doing, okay? <laughs> so, so then. Oh, that's right. <laughs> So I came back to the community and I told them and they said, oh, you have to go to Findhorn. And I said, what's Findhorn? And they said, oh, that's this community in Scotland. Everybody there is just like you. And I said, okay. So, so They all had visitations from God telling them to work with plants? Cool. Well, they work with fairies. You know, they work with the plant babies and fairies and so on. But anyway, so I went back to the States, sold all my possessions, which is also very Franciscan. I sold everything I had to get a ticket to go to Findhorn in Scotland. And uh, then I went to, to Findhorn and uh, learned flower essence counseling and uh, metamorphic technique, which is a, a type of massage. And I worked in the gardens there. And, um, and then I realized that what they were doing was what I was already doing. <laughs> so I said, I don't need to stay here. And it's weird because it, it, at the time in, in Findhorn, they would say people come here expecting to stay for a lifetime and they leave within weeks. People come expecting to stay a week and they stay for years, you know. So in my case, um, I just said, wow, I'm already doing all this stuff, you know. And so I went back to the States and then I, I tried – this was before the time of the Internet, you know, so I had to find a teacher – uh, to learn herbalism, um, there wasn't anybody really hardcore uh, doing herbalism at that point at Sindhorn. I mean, they were growing things in the garden, but, you know, I wanted a real training. So I came back to the States. I found my teacher, William Lasassier, and um, I hit the ground running. I've been doing it ever since. Wow. That's, that sounds wonderful. And it seems to me very Franciscan, too, just, just to go out and and find your spiritual life by seeking it in the wilderness. I mean, Francis was very much about connecting with nature and and finding God in, you know, nature itself, as opposed to going to churches. And and that church you described with gold leaf and all that stuff is, it seems very counter to Franciscan ideas. Right, exactly. I mean, I knew that, even though I had never studied... Francis, I knew that something was wrong, so I knew that it, you know it couldn't possibly be him. You know what he believed, and there's a great little book. Uh, oh, what's it called? Canticles. I haven't read it in years. Can, do you know that book? The Canticles of the, of um, the Canticle of the Sun, or something like that. There's well, so many great books on Francis. Yeah, well, anyway, it, it's a book of stories about Francis, the little flowers of St. Oh, Francis. yeah, I don't know. the little flowers, yeah. The Fioretti, it's called in Italian. That's, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that's the what the flowers. true name is. Yeah, so that that has all the, the stories 
the collected stories about his life, and um, I still have my copy of that. And, and the one you, you know, alluded to was um, The Wolf of Gubbio, where he, he right. walks town, they're plagued by this wolf that's, like, eating their livestock, and he's like, don't worry about it. And so he basically, like, tames the wolf, and then teaches the people in town to, like, continue feeding it and allow it to have its way wandering through town or whatever, but with less fear about it eating their animals because they're feeding it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and yeah, he's I mean, very compassionate. He loved animals. Yeah, definitely. Um, and honestly, I have to say that my own sort of spiritual life, I guess, began with brother, son, sister, moon. Um, that was my first exposure to Francis. And, and, you know, I guess it was partly because it was so heavily influenced by the hippie era that I yeah. kind of was like, this is just great. And then I think it was that that led into my own sort of exploration of various pagan spirituality and stuff. And I think if it wasn't something that he probably would have been burned for, I think Francis probably would have been you know, more openly a pagan. Well, he he's Not the a... patron saint of ecology, St. Francis. That he is. Yes, he is. And, and, uh, I feel like the odd woman out now because I've never studied anything about Francis or any of that. Well, we have a pope now. You know, we have a pope, Francis. And, and you know, the pope isn't perfect, but he's certainly a vast improvement. <laughs> Over what we previous, uh, yeah, because he's inspired by Francis, you know. It's true. Yeah, I mean, when you come to New York and you're driving around in a little Fiat, and all your bodyguards are in hundred thousand dollar SUVs. Plus, <laughs> <laughs> he believes he believes in global warming. Gosh, horrors. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, Ellen. Do you have like a, a go-to? Uh, plot that you use all the time or do you wildcraft all of your stuff? I mostly wildcraft and the reason is that because I live in the woods there's very little light here and it's extremely difficult to grow things so I do have some shade loving plants like sanguinaria which is bloodroot you know I have a lot of that it's really weird a lot of people say they can't grow it but it just it's everywhere you know um, around the house and um what else do I have? I mean, I have I most I use a lot of trees for medicine and things like oak and pine and cedar uh, locally, um, horse chestnuts, walnuts, things like that. Um, when I teach in California, I've been out there twice now teaching. I just came back. Um, I actually taught them how to make uh, herbal salves using trees out there. Um, really? Yeah, things like uh, bay, California bay laurel, uh, eucalyptus leaves, and redwood, sequoia. Um, I like to put rosemary in there because um, it smells so beautiful. Um, and then comfrey, lavender, calendula, horse chestnut, uh, and walnut. I always put walnut. Um, but those things are all native California things. In fact, I'm getting ready to make a huge batch of. I brought back um, all those herbs, and I, I'm getting ready to make salves again using those. It's a California tree salve, I call it. So cool, interesting. Yeah. Um, but, is there a particular 
like base recipe for a salve that you might recommend to people who want to sort of start well, exploring herbal? Yeah, in most of my books, I have the recipe for my basic salve. I think it's in just about all my books. Um, the, my basic, basic salve is green outer hull of the walnut. So you have to gather the walnuts in the summer. And um, what I do is I gather them early in the summer when they're still soft, and I, I cut those up and I freeze them. That's before there's a nut. Uh, because once the nut is there, you can still use it, but it's much harder to peel them. I use um, horse chestnut, which they call buckeye in Ohio. Uh, it's so funny, this woman from Ohio wrote me a, a postcard. She said, I want to make your herbal salve, but I can't find any horse chestnuts. <laughs> I wrote back to her, and I said, uh, you live in Ohio. They call it the buckeye state, <laughs> you know. Anyway, so I use that, and then I use uh, comfrey, leaves, calendula, lavender, beeswax, and olive oil. That's my basic salve. But now that I've got contacts in California, I love that I can put fresh eucalyptus and sequoia and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I used to live in an area where um, sagebrush grew wild and, and, you know, people could easily walk into the parks and, and just harvest armloads of it. Um, oh, yeah, I also, I, I throw, uh, last year when I made the California um, salve, I put white sage in there as well. Yeah, now everybody's scared to use it because it's going extinct and can't use sage for anything. And it's like, okay, I don't know. Well, what, the thing is you don't, you don't wildcraft it. If it's having trouble in the wild, what you do is you buy organic commercially grown ah see that 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 helps out <laughs> yeah, but the well, problem, and... that there's a reservation in california native american i forget what tribe they are they've been growing white sage and because of the drought the plants have died so oh. um you know until the rains come back it's going to be difficult California is really and actually, one of the things one of the things I really appreciate about your work, Ellen, is the fact that you incorporate like Native American um, herbal tradition as well. Um, and I think most people, when they look at studying herbalism generally, they they have kind of the options of the quote the old world tradition, and then you know there's there's a bit of a separation because there's no familiarity with the new world tradition um and i i personally think it i don't know i i've always been curious about that because it seems to me most people are familiar with the older tradition of you know european herbs so most of them they don't realize that the garden herbs most people grow are are european and that if they look into their own local area um the natives have their own traditions for the plants that grow around them. Well, there's a fabulous book that I like to recommend. It's by Daniel Mormon, M-O-E-R-M-A-N, Mormon. Um, it's called Native American Medicinal Plants. And I've been using that book for over 20 years now. That's why you find that in my books. That's That's where I go for information. Um, he originally, there were two technical reports 
from the University of Michigan, um, and one volume was alphabetical by tribe. The other volume was alphabetical by plant. So you could look up the plant and see which tribes used it and how, or you could look up a tribe and see which plants they used and how. So I had those. Wow. They were these huge books. And then he condensed all that. It's out in paperback. It's one paperback called Native American Medicinal Plants, Daniel Mormon. And that is how I found the plants to use from California. Because here I am. I mean, I live in Massachusetts. The plants here are completely different. And I knew I was going to California to teach. And I said, wow, you know, I have no clue uh, what the plants are out there, um, and it's kind of crazy, you know, that I'm going to be going out there to teach. So I asked um, Mary Pat Palmer, who has the Philo School of Herbal Energetics near Mendocino, and I said, what, what kind of trees do you have growing around you? You know, what's native to the area? And she gave me an idea. And then I looked up which, which tribes were native to that area. I think it's the Pomo. Anyway, I looked it up. I asked her which tribe, and so I looked up the tribe, and I figured out which plants they were using for skin healing. And it turned out that redwood was one of them, and I've never used redwood. You know, how would I know? So anyway, I got to her place, and she has lots of redwoods. You know, there's redwood everywhere. And so I, I started to make this salve, you know, and I threw in California bay laurel. I've never used California bay laurel. But it turns out it's this fabulous pain healer. I mean, when I use the horse chestnut, um, horse chestnut is anti-inflammatory and it kills pain. Well, the California Bay Laurel seems to do the same thing. So <clears throat> the salve is, uh, has been used by people who had surgery, um, like knee surgery, and they had pain afterwards, and they put the salve on and the pain went away, you know. Uh, people mm. who had back pain, people who had uh, cysts in their joints. I mean, really weird stuff, but where people had pain, and the salve uh, is very effective for that. But I, but it's the combination of, of plants that I found by looking at Mormon's book. Interesting. You know, you're gonna have to link. You're gonna have to link that when we put the episode up, so that everybody else can see it too. Yeah, well, just um, look it up. I'm sure he, it's on Amazon. <laughs> you know, everything's on Amazon. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm just, you know, put a link to it on the episode yeah. page so that they can get it. But can I talk cool. about my own book? I have a new book coming out. Can I talk about that? Go for Go it. For Please it. talk about it. Well, um, it's already available for pre-order. If you go to my website, ellenevertthotman.com, you'll see it there. It's called Secret Medicines from Your Garden. And... Um, what happened was when I went out to California, not this year, but last year, I went to the Philo School of Herbal Energetics, and I was on the phone with Matthew Wood. Do you, have, do you guys know Matthew Wood? Have you ever heard of him? I've got a few of his books, actually. They're great. Okay, so I was on the phone with him, and um, he said, oh, Ellen, what are you going to be teaching? <laughs> so I told him, and then he said, holy cow. He said, um, do you realize there's only two or three people in the entire country who are teaching what you're teaching. I said, you got to be kidding me, because I had no idea. Um, I'm teaching this particular system of formula making that I learned from my teacher, who was William Lasassier. And um, so Matt said, Ellen, you have to write a book. And he said, before it's too late. <laughs> so, 
So I said, oh, great. So I, I took the assignment, and I wrote the book, and it's coming out in the spring, uh, March 2016. Oh, yeah. Well, I tell you what, um, let's do this. Um, I've, Magical Musings will pick up a, a copy of that book, and if you would be kind enough to sign it, uh, we'll give a copy away to the listeners. How about that? Well, that would be great, but the book doesn't exist yet. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but I mean, when it comes out, we'll, uh, we'll get you to sign it, and then we'll mail it out to whoever wins the drawing of the various people who write in with the correct answer that we'll ask at a later time okay <laughs> make them listen to the episode and then they'll then we'll pull a trivia question out because of that and then they can uh, send it in and we'll we'll send them the book if they win okay that'd be great excellent all right um okay brian uh <laughs> well turn, I, guess. I was no. just browsing at the amazon page for the book actually and i'm i'm kind of intrigued by it because wait which book are we talking about Secret secret medicines from your oh, garden. Secret med- it's already on Amazon? Yeah. I've actually pre ordered it for myself. Actually. Oh I didn't realize that. I it's from Inner Traditions, Baron Company, so I know that it was on their website, but I didn't realize it was already on Amazon. Good lord. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of information about the book specifically, aside from sort of a summary of its content. Um but yeah, I mean, just from the basic description here, it sounds fascinating. And I know that um, when, like, when I got sort of curious about herbs back in like the late '90s, um, I had trouble finding a school because it was the early days of the internet. But there's right. a, a college um, that does like in-class courses and so on, and. One of the things I noticed was that they tend to focus more on the sort of clinical um, kind of non-spiritual healing. And I think that, like, it it can be kind of tough when you sort of look at it because I think that sort of one of the basic important details about healing, uh, especially when you're looking into alternative healing traditions, is the necessity of that mind body spirit connection um and i think that from what i can see of the description of secret medicines uh this looks like it's going to be covering a lot of that multi oh yeah 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 no there's a lot of mystical well you know me (laughs) i can't write a book unless it has a a mystical slant to it i just can't you know it's it's not possible but um, <laughs> Matthew Wood wrote the foreword, and, and he said, I, I, I can't quote him exactly, I don't have it in front of me, but he said, this book shows you the mind of an herbalist um, and how how the mind of an herbalist actually works, because it's not, you know, chapter one, two, three, four, five, it's not like that, it's, it's all the different things that I think about, you know, and one of the things that's in there is animal spirit medicines and um, the Doctrine of Signatures is in there, and the Triangle System of Formula Making is in there, and um, there's Native American stuff, Celtic stuff, Egyptian, you know, it's just all over the map, but that's that's oh. how my mind works. I Actually, guess. what... And then when you... 
And then when you add in the fact that you're a, a druid, I mean, with the hinge of Keltria, and you add in the mind, body, spirit with the three cauldrons, I mean, it sort of makes sense at that point. Well, I uh, yes, and I have not been a member of the hinge of Keltria since 1996. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, it shows you how old my knowledge is. Yeah, well, in 1996, and we can get into this in the second half of the show, but I founded a... Um, a Yahoo list at that point. Uh, was it Yahoo? I think so. It was uh, an internet list called uh, White Oak. And the reason it was called White Oak was because I went outside in the woods and I said, what should I call it? And they said, White Oak. And I said, okay. And then I didn't know that 20 minutes away from my house, I found this out 10 years later, was the largest white oak tree on the East Coast. Nice. Wow. Um, but the trees said that. They said, call it white oak. And I was like, okay. And, <laughs> and then <laughs> in 1997, that became a Druid order. And it's the Order of White Oak, which you can – it's on Facebook. Uh, it has a web page. I mean, you can look it up. And, and now I have a grove uh, within white oak. It's called Tribe of the Oak, which is just for people working towards initiation. But I don't know if you want to get into that in the second half of the show or if you want to get into that now. Yeah, we can talk about that in the second half. That's not a problem. I was just mentioning, you know, because, all right, well, we're going to throw out the plan at this point because we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, but I was, like I, like we said when we were trying to record it before, uh, I was on uh, the Druid at Yahoo Group's uh, review for a while. Um, and I remembered that... You were very active at that point, but this is back in like 92, 93 or something. Yeah, I was and one of the founders of Keltria. Um, but yeah, and yeah, and when I was investigating it as to thinking about jumping into Keltria, I think I asked you to be my mentor at the time, um, but I don't remember. I, it's, it's been, like you said, quite a number of years. Uh, but I do remember that you wrote a really scathing review of 21 Lessons of Merlin. I still have it up on my website. Well, that, that <laughs> review, I don't know, that review has become notorious. It's everywhere. Um, Obad has it on their website. It's just, it's everywhere. Because it's accurate. Well, I mean, partly, I mean, a lot of it has to do with plants, also getting back to the subject of plants. One, some of the most egregious errors that he made was calling Native American indigenous plants druidic, you know, like echinacea and pumpkins and things like that, which I found very insulting. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Considering the fact that anyone who knows their, their Halloween history knows that pumpkins are completely native to North America and not... Right. Like... And he goes on and on about how, you know, you're supposed to celebrate Halloween with uh, pumpkin flowers and pumpkins or something and I just this is ridiculous you know the whole thing was ridiculous so I wrote a scathing review plus he's so misogynist he hates women you know at, at the end of his book he says uh, the cauldron of Anuin into which no woman may look completely ignoring the fact that nine women guarded the cauldron of Anuin um, Not to mention all the connections in general in, in like, Celtic and Welsh mythology that connect women with cauldrons. I mean, yeah, the cauldron is, is like... Yeah, the cauldron of Caradwin, the, the, you know, all, uh, 
Cauldron of Rebirth call, was carried by the giantess. And, yeah, no, I mean, it's just garbage. It's just garbage. <laughs> his book. I actually had one of his ex-students write me at one point and say that uh, all the stuff that he recommended had to be done in order to prove that you were a druid. He never did any of it because he was scared to do it. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know, but it was it was a very interesting insight into him. But anyway, <laughs> yes, that, that review has become notorious, and I love it. Well... <laughs> I mean, I knew that it existed. I just didn't know it was you that had written it. Well, the most, the craziest thing that just happened, and this just happened like literally in the last few weeks, I started getting these attack emails from someone claiming to be a Native American spiritual leader saying that I was a plastic shaman and I was selling ceremonies and all this stuff. And I just wrote back and I said, what are you talking about? You know, and I said, um, I don't do Native American ceremonies. I would never claim to do Native American ceremonies. And I don't charge for ceremonies. I didn't know what they were talking about. So then they said, we found your name on a New Age fraud list. And I said, a New Age fraud list? I said, I'm not New Age. So I Googled Ellen Everett Hopman New Age fraud to see what would come up. Good old Google, right? And it turned out that they were using my review of the 21 Lessons of Merlin to prove that Douglas Monroe was a New Age fraud. Oh. That's how my name got on the New Age fraud list. Wow. Well. <laughs> so that, I mean, that review has been around, how long has it been? Like, I think since like 90... Yeah, when the book like first that? came out, whenever that was. So that that's a powerful review because <laughs> it's still anyway, coming back to bite you in the ass. Go figure. Yeah. And uh, I thought it might have been because you were uh, associated with the Gray School of Wizardry. I, you know. No, no, no. It's because they were quoting me to prove that Douglas Monroe was a fraud. Ah, gotcha. And so therefore, they saw my name. And they Googled my name, and they obviously didn't read very carefully. <laughs> and they decided they should attack me, on, you know, because I was a New Age fraud. I'm like, okay. Yes, that sounds like sort of identity politics overlapping with, like, sort of half-assed research kind of thing. It's, well, I think some people are just very filled with a lot of pain, really. They're, so, they're filled with so much pain that they're looking for – people to attack they're looking for things to put down and you know they, they they're just on the war path really i mean you can understand it i mean the pain is perfectly legitimate based on what's happened uh, to native americans you know centuries of oppression and christopher columbus oh yeah and... starting with columbus today is columbus day as we're recording this um who is one of the greatest murderers in, in history you know um, why he gets a day, I don't get it. I mean, he didn't discover America. There were a lot of people, including Vikings, you know, and Native yeah. Americans who were here long before Columbus. So I mean, there's all sorts I, of historical records that predate Columbus. I don't know. Of course. Should be yeah. Viking Day or, you know, Chinese Explorer Day. Chinese, or... yeah, the Chinese were here before Columbus. Uh, Vikings were here before Columbus, and of course, Native Americans were here before Columbus, but they don't—they don't count. Well, 
No, of course not. No. Columbus was important because he worked for, you know, such and such a queen in the church and, and all these other powers. Yeah, imperialism. He represented imperialism. Well, and I mean, it's so weird, too, because, like, you've got Portuguese explorers who, who were all over South America and and on and on. I mean, there's just so many other people that came along to explore and here's Columbus that gets all the credit. No, it really was. It was horrific. And, you know, what has happened since, in my opinion, you know, is is unconscionable because the American government had a chance to fix a lot of it, and they just perpetuated it with all the – Ignoring all the treaties and everything like that. I mean, it's it's horrific to anybody that goes out and actually looks at the evidence mm-hmm. instead of just listening to the propaganda. It's true. And I mean, even in Canada, there's a lot of um, sort of work being done by different um, – different – crap, I can't think of the word. Um, people in Oops. different fields that are sort of addressing the – sort of importance of of healing the damage that's been done like especially through residential schools which i think have mm-hmm. you know happened in america as well yeah we had those um, here mm-hmm. and like there's actually a book by rupert ross that uh discusses the 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 damage um that happened not as not only during the time of residential schools, but following that. Um, and it's called Indigenous Healing. And it talks about how Native cultures were obviously affected by residential schools because the young people were being shipped off to areas of the country that were completely unfamiliar to them. And, you know, they were being crammed in with people who didn't speak their language. So they were isolated in all sorts of ways and they were being forced to speak a foreign language. And um, as a result of their time in residential schools, you know, it affected their family life because they've had that distance created in their families. And so they were um, less able to parent well and that sort of thing. So there's all these subsequent results from the time of the residential schools, you know, closing what 40 years ago or whatever so it's interesting for the for those listeners that are still a little lost this was a uh at least in america a a nationwide attempt to erase the tribal identity and the indigenous identity so they would forcibly take children from their homes on the reservations ship them off to schools where they would isolate them and force them to speak English and learn uh, American history and everything like that instead of and you know convert them to Christianity force them to worship Jesus and God and everything like that and it's really really a, a horrible time period and Ellen does make a point I mean they were asked to cut their hair you know and that was a significant part of their culture and you know they were they weren't allowed to speak their languages or perform their own ceremonies or live their own spirituality um so there's a lot of damage that was done on multiple levels of life by first the residential or the uh reserve reservation system 
and then the, the residential schools that followed. Um, Plus, they were also told that they were inferior constantly and that they weren't worth as much as the white person was and that they had no hope of becoming a white person. So, you know, you're doing you're doing damage on a physical level. You're doing it on an emotional level, on a mental level and also on a spiritual level. But do you know that this all started with the Irish? It started really a deliberate policy. They was. They were forbidden to speak their language. They're, they were forbidden to follow laws. They were forced to follow English law. That's where the expression beyond the pale comes from. The pale was English law. Beyond the pale was still the traditional Irish law. But in Scotland, they did the same thing. It was illegal to wear a tartan. You were not allowed yeah. to wear a tartan. You couldn't play the mm-hmm. Gaelic um, music or sing Gaelic songs. You weren't allowed to speak in Gaelic um, you know, so they bagpipes were forbidden. Bagpipes were, and... Harps were forbidden in Ireland. This is fascinating. Queen Elizabeth outlawed the harp. Uh, the Irish harpers were considered the finest harpers in Europe, and she always made sure that she had an Irish harper in her court. But the Irish themselves were forbidden to play the harp. Hypocrit- hypocritical, much? Well, I mean, <laughs> so they started with the Irish, then they did it to the. Scots, you know, and then they came over and they did it here, the same thing, and it was a very conscious, deliberate policy. Everything you just said, they would give orders to the governors, you know, they would say, tell them that, tell them that their religion is inferior, that their culture is inferior, that, you know, only English culture is worth anything. And that was well. Then you get into English colonialism, like throughout the world, and right. And then they did it in Australia, and then they did it in Africa, and they did it in India, and that was that was uh, English imperialism. That was, you know, that was the empire. That's what an empire is, right? So, um, and then as England has, England is still incredibly wealthy, but as they have withdrawn their power. Then the American Empire took over. You know, it's true. And yeah, it's like the it's like the march of the um, Trail of Tears was deliberately done to try to kill off all the Cherokee that they were moving. You know, it's it's another it's more and more of the imperial powers or the powers in control trying to get rid of the indigenous people. And it's a, and it's one reason why there's a huge movement now uh, starting to get, get momentum to try to get rid of Columbus Day just as a prequel to trying to get all of this taken care of and fixed. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if anyone's honest about their history, you know, the idea of Columbus Day itself is just horrendous, and you know it shouldn't be celebrated as it is. I mean, let's be you know more re- realistic about how we look at things like Columbus Day or you know Thanksgiving, because um, today for you guys it's Columbus Day, for me it's Thanksgiving today. Right. And, Happy Thanksgiving. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, and the whole idea of the history of it is just like. It's it's about blood-soaked violence, and, you know, there's this idealistic picture painted of pilgrims and natives dining together, and, you know, it's all about gratitude and peace and all this kind of thing, but no, I mean, if you look at the history of it, it's just violence and, you know, cultural dismemberment, I suppose. It is, absolutely. 
There's another book that I would like to recommend. Maybe you can put a link to this one. It's called A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Z-I-N-N. Yes. I've heard that name before. Well, I've got the Zinn Reader uh, in an ebook format. It's very good. Well, yeah, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. But I always tell people everybody needs to read that book at least once in their lifetime. It's one of those books that everybody should read because he tells American history in a way, all the things that they didn't tell you in school, but that really happened, he, mm-hmm. he tells. And he starts with, who was this Columbus guy, and what did he do? The minute he set foot on land, you know, he started cutting off people's noses and killing people and enslaving people. That's how it all started. And, um, you know, but, but it's just a great book if you want to under, if you want to really understand the history, you know, behind what they taught you in school. Kind of makes you wish that Squanto never taught the, the English how to grow corn over here, doesn't it? Uh, but, you know, the Vikings came here, uh, what, around the year 600? Eric the Red was, was here in America. Um, mm-hmm. And the Vikings didn't commit genocide. You know, they came, they farmed. They It looks like they probably interbred. You know, they had marriages or something. You know, it's like it was peaceful. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, I think have... because I mean, a lot of that probably was because they were so far from home. They realized that the most logical thing they could do would be to get along with the natives and learn how to live off this this new territory yeah, that they were. Columbus could have done the same thing. Columbus could have had a peaceful union with the, the, this new country, these new people who had new plants and new ways of doing things. But he didn't. He had this murderous, thuggish, horrible attitude, you know, when, I mean, he came to conquer, you know, and that's very, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It just occurs to me, like, as a pagan, you kind of, you hear those kind of things and you're like, yeah, primarily the Catholic Church was completely aggressive and violent in sort of, converting so many people i mean it's weird because in the early days of the you know of christianity like in constantine's era it wasn't about like violent domination it was more like sort of until he created what it is now i mean it it was more like move in and adapt the roman empire to the local culture you know adopt their gods and that kind of thing as opposed to this is our God, and you will worship him as we tell you to, etc. Yeah, the Romans were, we were, were very tolerant, actually. Um, and, the, and the only reason they went after the Christians was because the Christians were so intolerant. <laughs> I mean, and they were being you know, because, but We were talking about this last uh, show, so... <laughs> oh, okay. It all relates back to tarot. I don't want to bore anybody. <laughs> But. No, this is actually what we enjoy. What we do, this is, we talk about. We start on a topic. We get some things talked about, and then we go into two hours of riffing on other things. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. and it's been our experience with other authors too. I mean, we talk about what you lead us into talking about, right? And if that's politics, if that's history, if that's you know 
name your spirituality. Um, it's it's like we just go where the current blows us. You know, it, it's like what else? Yeah, we had Galena Kraskova on here, and we started talking to her about uh, Asatru and the Northern tradition, and we went into a long rant on um, uh, prejudice and <laughs> intolerance, and it was wonderful. So, yeah, I mean, we aren't afraid to go where you lead us. Um, <laughs> although I, I was following it, you. <laughs> well, it all relates back to tarot because, you know, now we're going to talk about us. Well, it occurs to me. Um, there is one sort of line describing your uh, upcoming book, Ellen, um, that says, reveals the triangular formula making system of William Lassassier. Um okay. I'm curious what this triangular or triangle formula making thing is. Well, that that was what Matthew Wood was talking about when he said, you have to write a book, um, because that's what I learned from my teacher. Uh, it's hard to describe it verbally. I mean, in the book, I have a long chapter, and I go step by step with drawings and everything. But um, you start out, well, if you're addressing a condition, the least amount of herbs that you would use would be three, and you always have a builder, a cleanser, and a tonic. But in the, in the triangle system, you have a large triangle with a small triangle inverted in the center. And the triangle in the center is the center of gravity of the illness. And at, in the center of gravity, for example, if it was pneumonia, you might put the lungs, right? So you would have three parts of a builder for the lungs, three parts of a cleanser for the lungs, and three parts of a tonic for the lungs. That would be the center. And that, then you have three triangles, one on top, one on the left, and one on the right. And those are concomitants, in other words, other systems that might be affected. Um, I mean, everybody's different, but you could say, oh, maybe the skin is very dry, maybe the colon, because the person is, has been constipated for a long time. Um, and this, this, you have one triangle for the skin because the skin is breaking out because the person has been young or very toxic for a long, long time. Um, and then you might have a triangle for the blood because you're thinking if you clean the blood, oxygenate the blood, that's going to help everything. You know, So you're going to have a, build, a builder, a cleanser, and a tonic for the colon, a builder, cleanser, and tonic for the blood, a builder, cleanser, and tonic for the skin, and in the center is the lungs. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I, I don't know. Personally, I can visualize the diagram you just described. but Okay. Yeah, so so I. I have about 40 pages in the book of builders, cleansers, and tonics. So in other words, kidneys, builders, cleansers, tonics. You know, lungs, builders, cleansers, tonics. Colon, builders, cleansers, tonics. There's about 40 pages. And then each herb, it, it says whether it's cool <laughs> Moist, dry, hot, you know. Um, so you're getting into the four humors as well. Or the, I think it's four Yeah, humors. and it's, right, that's part of it. Um, I, and, I, and I actually describe, this is why the book is, is, as Matthew said, the mind of an herbalist. Because I get into the Galen, the Galenic system. I get into Chinese five element theory. Um, well, the doctrine of signatures, you know. 
I, different types of classifica plant classifications and the animal spirit medicines. Uh, there are all these different ways of classifying plants, you know. Do you, like, use the um, stuff with uh, the planet Saturn in well, yeah, our... I have that also. I have planetary uh, <laughs> herbalism. That's... But I also have in my oh. book, um, The Druid's Herbal for the Sacred Earth Year, I also have a big section on um, herbal astrology. You know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Very thorough, I, I take it. <laughs> yeah, well, so in this... Yeah, in the new book, I try to show many different ways of classifying plants. Yeah. Well, because well, it also sounds like you've got, you know, for, like you said, with the pneumonia, uh, you could be taking up to, to 20 different uh, herbs at any one time. No, no, no. It's 18 parts. The formula actually has 18 parts, but it's considered, that would be like the most herbs you would ever have, and that's that's actually somewhat related to Chinese formula making. However, it is very inelegant to have 18 different herbs because if you have that many herbs, you're hitting the body with 18 different messages, which is much harder for the body. So what you, the best way to do it, and I explain this, is that if you can find four or five herbs, if you can fill all your triangles using just four or five herbs, that's the that's Oh. Okay, that makes a little more sense then, and that explains a little bit more of the Chinese herbology too. Yeah, so you try to find an herb that's a bridge between, say, the colon and the blood, and another herb that's a bridge between the blood and the skin. And, you know, you, you try to find bridge herbs, that, or you might find one herb that covers the colon, the skin, and the blood, you know, and you use that. So, And the same thing with flower essences, you know, Bach used one flower essence. I've seen crazy flower essence systems where they have 22 different flower essences thrown together in a bottle. And, I mean, that's crazy because <laughs> you put that in the body and it's like you're sending 22 separate messages to the body. And you've, yeah, and in your research you've had a lot of success with using this like this? You're talking about the triangle system? Yeah, the the triangle system the, and things like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Cool, outstanding. Well, and it's interesting to me too that I think one of the the things that really got me sort of fascinated with herbal remedies was the fact that there is that sort of basic sort of chemical component that sort of sits at its base, but then you can, you know, layer it with like spiritual influences, planetary influences, you know, the humors. Oh, yeah. I mean, tr various traditions from around the world, native Chinese, Ayurvedic, etc. And the more you sort of learn, the the more specific you can be about your treatments. Because um, I mean, and then of course, if you incorporate things like spagyrics into it, uh, you're you're dealing with herbal remedies on an entirely, you know, different level because you're bringing into it the the spiritual, um, planetary, um, astrological even uh, influences into a single remedy. Right. And that's and this is why I never got into herbalism because it gets so complex so quickly. Oh, well, no. <laughs> it's 
better if you keep it simple. Like I said, it's the if you, uh, it. Tr first there is no mountain. No, first there is a mountain. Then there is no mountain. Then there is. How does that song go? <laughs> Um, yes, yes the song. <laughs> well, okay, if you have an acute condition like a cold, right, you can work with one herb. That's fine. Just work with one herb. But if you're going to work with anything longer term, you don't work with one herb. You go to three herbs. And then it, when you get a little bit more confident, you go to 18 parts, you know, like, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I try to go through all this stuff in the book, like, if somebody yeah. needs grounding, you know, you think roots, right? If somebody needs to uh -huh. lighten up, you think leaves and flowers. You know, there's certain cool. simple things you can keep in your mind. Um, and then, well, one, like I mentioned, the, the Daniel Mormon book, I love going to – I'm not a chemist. I've never studied chemistry. There's some people who understand herbs by their chemistry. I've never done that. I like using things that have been around for thousands of years because I figure if people have used them for thousands of years, there must be a reason. So mm -hmm. that's why I love going to books like Mormons, you know, to look at the Native American plants that have been used for millennia, you know. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, that, like, when you look at folk medicine and traditional herbal remedies, um, you see a lot of the sort of sort of traditional uses for a particular plant that are confirmed by science when, you know, they start breaking down the chemical components of each plant. And they're like, yeah, there's this active component within this herb that is really effective on, you know, cancer or, you know, whatever. At this point in the interview, we had a few technical difficulties that we needed to overcome. We reinitiated the call, and now we pick up with the next section of the show. Guys, all you listeners, we rely on you guys. Um, Y'all listen to our show, and that's wonderful, and that's great, but feedback is critically important to us so that we know that you're listening to us, so that we know that we're doing a good job, that we're bringing you things that are interesting to you. Um, it helps sometimes, you know, to have some money to be able to pay for things like the website and Skype and, you know, various things like this. So we also like to get your donations when you have it. Um, but more than that, we'd like to hear from you guys. If you need to get in touch with us, if you want to write us, if you want to tell us off because we're not doing the right thing, please write us through the website. It's magicalmusings.net. Uh, no K, all one word, magicalmusings.net. Um, and it's Brian at magicalmusings.net or Joy at magicalmusings.net, and that'll get straight to us. Uh, if you want to follow us on Tumblr, uh, he's cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com, and I'm on wide-worlds-joy.tumblr.com. Those are pretty much our personal day-to-day -day thoughts about everything. Magical Musings is where we try to talk about all of the things that are Paganism 201 and beyond. Um, it would be nice if we could, you know, send Ellen, you know, $30 for her time uh, spending with us, because uh, two hours is a big chunk out of somebody's life. Uh, so please, if you've got a little extra, 
send it to us. We'll be grateful for you. You know, we'll read your emails on the on the air, and you can tell your friends that hey, you did a good thing. So, okay, that's the end of that section. <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, so we were talking about herbs just before the the break, Ellen, and um, one of the things that. I or Mary, the goddess of all research, my wife had written down, uh, is that uh, she wanted to know if you had uh, a go-to cold and flu remedy or any you know pre-prepared things like that that you use over and over, or if you make them new for each case. Well, again, if it's an acute condition, you can go with just a couple of herbs. Uh, if it's a long-term chronic condition, then you have to get a lot fancier. You know, you, that's when I go into the triangle system. But as far as um, my go-to cold thing, um, I have this uh, mixture that I make every year. And, again, I give it to people, and they swear by it. Also, we need to talk about the Druid book, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fine. We can go ahead and do that now. <laughs> so. So I just wanted to mention that um, in March, roughly March, I'm not, I haven't been given a date yet, um, but sometime in the spring, I have a new Druid book coming out called A Legacy of Druids, and it, mm-hmm. it is not yet available for pre-order because it's still being edited, but Philip Cargom wrote the foreword, which is very nice, and John Matthews wrote the introduction. And wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, it's a collection of interviews that I did with very prominent Druids, people like Lady Olivia Robertson, who is no longer with us, who's the founder of the Fellowship of Isis. Isaac Bonowitz is in there. Um, King Arthur is in there. Um, I mean, it's just, it's a great collection of people in, from Britain, uh, Canada, and the U.S who are all Druids, and um, uh, Philip Cargom did a beautiful job. You know, he's he seems to be um, creating a universal type of Druidism. Obad is becoming a, uni- it's kind of like the universal Unitarian version of Druidism. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, we have everything from Celtic Reconstructionist Druids to tree-hugging druids to political druids to musical druids, <laughs> you know, um, wow. Celtic, you know, hardcore Celtic druids and uh, not Celtic druids. And well, so, and I think uh, a lot of that probably comes from the, the druid network because, I mean, they were probably the first sort of open door into multifaceted druidism. No, actually, I did the interviews long before the Druid Network. Really? Oh, yeah. The interviews were done um, around 1996 when I was traveling in Britain that year. Uh, That was the same year that I started the whole White Oak um, adventure. Uh, I had a mailing list called uh, White Oak. And um, I sat on the interviews for how how many years is that? about 20 now almost 20 (laughs) years yeah and um, and then finally this little voice in my head said oh my god you better get these out there before it's too late you know and like yeah especially (laughs) since isaac is no longer with us that's right um and (laughs) olivia is no longer with us and tim sebastian 
is in there. He's no longer with us. Uh, anyway, so, um, and and it was weird. I mean, I guess I held back because I had these interviews, and I didn't know if anybody would care. You know, they were so old, and I didn't think anyone would be interested. Um, but apparently, especially the English druids, find it quite fascinating. Um hmm. Well, yeah, I can't a, a wait really... to hear about it. Sorry. Sorry I... <laughs> <laughs> what? Yes, I can't wait to read it. And then Brian started talking. <laughs> well, well it... Skip, you know, Skip Ellison, who's the former arch druid of ADF, which is the largest American druid order, probably. He um, he has already read it, and he wrote a little cover blurb, and he said that he thought it was so important that he's going to uh, recommend it for the Druidic training program for ADF as a Ooh, basic nice. text. Yeah. So, and Philip Cargum obviously really likes it um, because he he said he will promote it, and he did write the foreword. And the Fellowship of ISIS is excited about it because it's an interview with Olivia that they haven't seen before. Um, hmm. Well, and I think yeah. too that the Fellowship of ISIS has sort of faded into the background as a, a name in modern pagan circles because I, I don't think there's a lot of people that I've known in the past 20 years who've ever even heard of the Fellowship. So well, I know a little bit of them, but I really don't know anything about them. I mean, you know, and I was really involved with the Druid Orders back when I was with the ODU, and I can't recall ever hearing much other than the name. Well, she had um, she has a lot of or had a lot of members, probably something like thirty thousand, all because they were all over the world. A lot of them were in Africa, interestingly enough, Nigeria. Um, but within the Fellowship of ISIS, there's a Druid group called the Druid Clan of Dana. And um, when I visited Olivia at her castle in Clonagall, which I did twice. The first time I went, I brought a copy of my first book, which was called Tree Medicine, Tree Magic, and I gave her a copy, and she and I had a conversation, and she told me to drink from the well. She had a, a, a well in the, in the basement of the castle, which uh, was supposed to impart clairvoyance. She told me to drink from the well. And then she said, um, well, she made me an archdruidess right there without any just on the basis of that book, you know, because wow. nice. um, I, I didn't do any training or anything, but she just said, you're an archdruidess, druid clan of Dana, Grove of Bridget. And she gave me a piece of paper, <laughs> yellow paper with wow. her signature on it. Um, yeah, so, and I guess when, that would have been around 1990, I think. So I've technically I've been an archdruidess since 1990, but I never wanted to call myself that. Um, because I figured, you know, I don't know how long you've been kicking around Druid circles, but uh, there's a lot of jealousy and backbiting that goes on. If yeah, you... there's mm-hmm. – especially especially with the ordination seekers that just seem to go out there and look for titles that they can tack on to the end of their name. Yeah, and I and I and so I never mentioned it. I never said anything about it, and then um, I only recently started talking about it, and I put it, you know – on my books, my last couple of books, uh, in my credits, I put the um, Archdruid as Druid Clan of Dana. Um, I didn't used to say that at all, but now I do. Because uh, in we, in Order of White Oak, we did not have an Archdruid or an Archdruidess. 
Um, for five years, we had a chief or a co-chief, and um, I and, and Craig Malia, who's from Britain, we were co-chiefs, but we never had an archdruid. Um, so, but I've learned the hard way that <laughs> when I started Tribe of the Oak, which is the group that I run now, which is, I mentioned it earlier, it's a, it's a study group for people, it's only for people who want to uh, become Druid initiates. It's not for anybody else. So it's not a general group. It's only for initiates. And um, we do have a Facebook page. We had a Yahoo page, but we dropped it. We're, we're now just we're on Facebook. Um, but for, when I started that group, right from the beginning, I said, I am Archdruidess Tribe of the Oak. And I did that because I was really sick of getting attacked. <laughs> Um, no doubt. I don't know. You know, I mean, in, it, especially when you're a woman, you know, a woman, like, witches tend to be female, you know, and there's mm-hmm. a reason for that. Um, Gerald Gardner's Evolution, if you read Ronald Hutton's great book, The Triumph of the Moon, which I urge everybody mm-hmm. to read if you haven't, uh, he talks about how Gerald Gardner began uh, with he had the priest fully robed, surrounded by naked females. That was how he started out. And then he went through six different versions of the Book of Shadows, uh, rewriting it, the Gardnerian Book of Shadows. And then the final version, the priestess, emerges as the most important figure. Yeah, um, and we've discussed that on uh, this, on this show uh, previously, so okay, go back and listen to our riffs about it. <laughs> Well, that's that's witchcraft. Witchcraft, uh, women, the moon, the female, you know, is is much more predominant. In Druidism, sad to say, it is still, you know, men. men. I mean, if you look at the Archdruids, they are overwhelmingly men. And the few women who have been Archdruids, like Emma Restel Orr, myself briefly just for five years in White Oak, we are challenged constantly, constantly, and it's it's usually it's oh well in my case it was always by men. I was never really challenged by a woman, but men who they were constantly feeling like they could do a better job, you know. So what happened was um, I finally got sick of being challenged all the time. So one by one, I started relinquishing what I was doing. Okay, so. So you want to be, you want to do the archives. You don't want me to do it. You want to do it. Okay, fine. So I, I would hand that off to somebody. You know, different things that I was doing, I handed off to different people, and all men. And as soon as they got the job and the title, they, they didn't, didn't want do the work. Yeah. They dropped. Typical. It. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, that's... no. I actually have a. I actually kind of have a, a, a UPG theory about this. And I know a couple of other people have come up about it or talked about it before, but back in the ooze when the druids and the the Celts were, you know, really rolling in the British Isles, you it can be theorized that you had two groups. You had the druids and you had the witches. And the witches would have a lot of the same knowledge, but they would tend to the women more often than the druids do. Well, when the the Romans came rolling in, they see you know the men 
who are doing and being and being the spiritual leaders. But the women are in the background, so they wipe out the druids, and all that you have left is the, the female portion. Okay, and, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you have to read. Okay. I have an article called Female Druids, which you must Google. It's on the Internet. Female Druids by Ellen Everett Hopman, or The Evidence for Female Druids, something like that. And there were very many female druids. I'm not saying no, that I think, there were. No, I think that I honestly think that, that there were just as many probably female druids as there were male druids. But what happened was the historians tended to be men. And so the historians, whether they were the Roman historians, you know, like Tacitus and Caesar and all these people, all they wrote about was the males. They ignored the females. Yeah. And so I think that, that um, we have a very strange view of what a druid is as a result of that because we're, we've been looking at it through the male historian view. I mean, even in modern times, the modern historians have tended to be men, and they always mm-hmm. focus on the males. But what, what's happening now is because women are, you know, finally becoming scholars – in greater numbers. There's actually more women, I think, graduating from college now than men. But you have more female scholars. So that we're finding the evidence for the female druids, and we're bringing it forward. It's there. You just have to dig for it, you know? Well, and I'm not sure if it was Isaac Bonowitz or um, someone else, maybe Ronald Hutton, who who theorized that the reason that... Um, the witches tended to be more, you know, more commonly female was the fact that they were like training to be druids, but there tended to be, you know, more um, domestic concerns and that sort of thing. So they tended to stop at like the herbal training and that sort of thing. So um, the idea. Yeah, I don't buy that. Be... I don't buy that. <laughs> I'm that's, sorry. That's totally because, fair. Have you, ever heard of a, have you ever heard of a sorcerer? Well, they, yeah, the male, exactly. Yes, the males were called sorcerers, or they were called cunning men, and the, the cunning women were the females. And the difference between a druid and a witch, basically, is that the druid was a member of the aristocracy. The druid was born into the highest class, even higher than the nobility. Um, it, it was called nemed. It was the sacred class. It's like the Brahmins of India. The Brahmin class is a whole class, right? In India, you have the Brahmins, then you have the warriors, who are nobles, then you have the farmers and producers, then you have the untouchables. Celtic society had the exact same thing. And the Druidic uh, class, they were Druidic families, and they trained their children to be Druids, just like the Brahmins, male and female. So that was the Druid, and the Druids worked with the aristocracy, they worked with the king, they worked with the queen. Um, the, they, in Irish tradition, they always said the Druid and the king are the two kidneys of the kingdom. The king cannot function without a Druid because the Druid knows the laws and the precedents. The king knows how to uh, do warfare. The king... And when you- well, yeah, and I'll and I'll grant you all that. But then, if that's the case, and there were just as many women, like you were saying, um, why isn't there more? I don't know how to say this. Uh, more lore that has legal stuff in it in the the cunning men and women section. Okay, first of all, the 
the lore, as you say, was written down by monks. The monks were men. The men That's... didn't care about women. They ignored women or were scared of women, avoided women, and they tended to write more about men. And that's been true for centuries, you know. And then as far as the witches, what a witch was, cunning man, cunning woman, they were magical practitioners. They were working with the common people. They lived in the village. They did not work with the nobility. And the the reason people were terrified of witches, why they were scared of them, is because the witch was a law unto themselves. The Druid worked with the king. The Druid was a um, public figure, led public rituals, stood next to the king. When the king had to pass a judgment, the king had to turn to the Druid and say, what is the legal precedent? And the Druid had the laws in their head. They would turn to the king and they would say, in the case of Macduff versus Macduff, here's what happened. you know." And then the king would make a judgment. Whereas with the witch... They didn't have those laws, and the witch was, you know, they, they made up their own mind. They did what they wanted, which was very scary. You didn't know if they were on your side or not. You didn't know whose side they were on, and you could go to them for magic, you know, maybe to help you heal your animals or your sick child or something. But um, with the Druid, you always knew that the Druid was working on the side of the tribe and on the side of the king. With the witch, you didn't know. They were a law unto themselves. Well, and and that, that actually makes a lot of sense. It actually does. And it, it occurs to me, too, that like the whole idea of the Druids working alongside the, the aristocracy, um, it, it just seems like the witches themselves would have been um, – Kind of shit. I lost my train of thought there. You can edit that part out. Oh God. Um, but it occurs to me as well that uh, if there had been more women in the Middle Ages, like Hildegard, for instance, you would have had women going out into the field and doing research and learning about like the female druids and all that sort of thing. I mean, you probably would have heard a great deal more about. Um, the feminine side of spirituality um, all over the, the British Isles and, you know, across Europe and that sort of thing. Were there more women who were bold enough, courageous enough to say, you know, I want to learn all this stuff, you know, screw, you know, holding all that information in among the, the male portion of, of the, the church. Let's, let some of the nuns go out and travel and, you know, see the world and learn about it. Well, the reason that female nuns, even though they were educated, the reason that you don't hear that much about them and they never got very prominent was because the church had an actual policy that if a man founded an order like Bernard, for example, you know, if, if somebody, if a male went out and founded an order the order would continue after his death. If a woman went out and founded an order, it had to be dissolved on her death. That huh. was the official policy. So that women could not perpetuate knowledge. The nuns... So the... Well, what about the, the order of bride, uh, where the nuns took over from the priestesses? That continued. 
Yeah, and then the Pope put a stop to it as soon as the Pope found out about it. That only continued because it was in Ireland, it was hidden, and the Pope had no idea. The minute the Pope heard about this, it was suppressed. Because you can't have a bunch of uppity women, you know, doing their own thing, answering questions, when having people come to them as if they were wise and asking their opinion on things. You just can't have that. So as soon as the Pope found out about it, it was, it was stopped. Oh. You didn't it's, know this? It <laughs> shows what I get for not paying attention. And, you know, yeah, it was, I mean. And jumping sexes, you know. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have uh, internet in those days. They didn't have telephones. You know, nobody knew what was going on. It was in the hinterlands of Ireland. You had these priestesses. I mean, I wrote a whole novel about this. We haven't talked about my novels. I have a trilogy of novels. The first one is called Priestess of the Forest, A Druid Journey. The second one is called The Druid Isle. The third one is Priestess of the Fire Temple, A Druid's Tale. And Priestess of the Fire Temple, it's actually a trilogy, but is um, I read somewhere one sentence that said that St. Bridget's Fire Temple was based on an earlier pagan model. And when I read that sentence, the entire novel was born, and I wrote this novel about it. Um, but there, it, there was this pagan tradition of women who kept a perpetual fire, and there was a, the archdruid of Ireland also kept a perpetual fire. The, the archdruid's fire was at Ushna, which is the exact geographic center of Ireland, um, and then the women's fire uh, was at Kildara, which means Church of the Oak, killed there. Um, and then Bridget just kept it going. St. Bridget just kept it going. And, um, yeah, like I said, as soon as the Pope found out, he put a stop to it. So I guess that means the order that uh, Mother Teresa founded has to be dissolved now, huh? I don't, I don't know if that rule still exists. I'm just saying during the Middle Ages, all during the Middle Ages, that was the law that if a woman founded an order... <laughs> It had to be dissolved on her death. And that's why, you, I mean, you had Hildegard of Bingen, who was a Renaissance, well, you know, we call them a Renaissance man. She was a Renaissance woman before the Renaissance. You know, that's she true. was a musician, she was a poet, she was a doctor. Um, she commissioned great artwork for, based on her visions. Um, you know, she, she was an abbess, she was a leader, a spiritual leader, you know. Yeah, she was, she was pretty awesome. She was a Renaissance person. So short of having the actual knowledge and the rituals and such of the Druids, uh, sounds like she could have been a Druid. <laughs> well, what is a Druid? The Druids were the teachers of the children of the nobility, mm -hmm. and they were experts. That's what a Druid is. It's an expert. So they were either lawyers, doctors, um, expert bards, you know expert harpers <laughs> you had to be an expert to be a druid and wasn't it isaac poet. bonowitz that wrote that book that discussed the uh the various ways that the druids were broken down into classes and that sort of thing like he he said that the 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 druids were the sort of priest class but within the druids there was also the same sort of three-tiered system of like ritual helpers and then there was like the scholars who were like the ovates and then there was like the the ritual leaders themselves who were sort of the the top of the 
the top echelon of the the whole organization who were the public ritual leaders and that sort of thing. Actually, the top of the whole thing were the Feely, the sacred poets. They were the highest grade of Druid. It's true. There's a, I know, we I know we I have a book. Um, we have a book. It's called the Yurakesh Narir, the the laws of the poets, um, which is translated directly from the Irish. Uh, Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, Urakecht Narir, um, which goes into the different grades of Druids. Well, yeah, that's the thing, too. People are familiar mostly with the Irish tradition of Druidism because the records kept were so much more detailed. Um, and they weren't destroyed by the Romans. I mean, the Romans came in and pretty much wiped out most of the civilization and tradition in uh, the Gallic areas mm-hmm. of France and Spain and everything. That's right. And then they got a really good toehold into the British Isles and pretty much corrupted all of the, the Welsh knowledge. But then they got, you know, then they withdrew when they started going into Ireland. So it's the only one that was really preserved. Well, that's exactly what we found um, when, when we started White Oak. We spent an entire year discussing what is a Druid. And I'm talking about 50 or 60 Druids, the very best Druids that I could pull together. We discussed it for a year, and we came up with a collection of ancient Irish, mostly just about all ancient Irish 7th century um, writings, and we like the old stuff because um, it's closer to the original. You know, these are the things as they were first written down by the monks, you know, not Victorian, yeah, in other words. Um, so that is the core of the White Oak training program. The fostership program that I have at Tribe of the Oak is based on this ancient Irish material. Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of where... Um Bonowitz took, like, ADF out of the RDNA, right? Like, it was because he wanted to focus more on scholarship, and then, you know, you had various traditions branching off of ADF. He also, Um, he's very, Isaac was very Indo-European. Yeah, definitely. And we're not, we're Celtic. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, in ADF you'll get uh, Scandinavian Druids and Polish Druids and, you know, Russian Druids and I don't (laughs) You know, we we don't have truck with any. That's of that. kind just... of what weirded me out when I was part of ADF. Actually, was the whole yeah. idea that you could have Hellenic druids and you could have yeah, like no. Slavic druids and you know yeah, Vedic Isaac. druids and stuff. Right. I think his idea was that it, it all the whole Indo-European tradition comes from the same roots, which is Proto-Vedic. You know. Um, language and civilization it all comes from there so he said oh they're all just branches of the same tradition um which is one way of looking at it but but no i don't feel comfortable with that either i i like celtic stuff i want to be celtic thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i think a lot of druids actually feel that way i know i did when i was looking around and investigating druidism uh and druidry i looked at uh, adf and saw that they had shinto druids and i went no i really don't think so <laughs> and there's Hus- <laughs> they have hasidic druids don't forget the hasidic druids it's yeah i weird, went um <laughs> i mean i think that's sort of that must have been the schism that led to uh keltria right 
That's right. That's exactly what happened is that um, a bunch of us who were in ADF, uh, when would that have been? 1986, I think it was. Uh, we went to PSG, Pagan Spirit Gathering, and we were sitting around the fire and we said, boy, we're really sick of, you know, Scandinavian Druids and Polish Druids and what are we going to do about it? And um, and we said, let's it, let's form a group of Celtic Druids. What a thought. <laughs> is it true that y'all wrote up uh, the, the theses that were only like 12 items? And yeah, it was 12 like items two? listed one, and then the last one was 95. <laughs> and, and, and nailed it up on his tent pole or we, something? No, we taped it to Isaac's van. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I heard that story, and I said, no, that couldn't have been right. That's exactly what happened. It was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, ninety-five. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Outstanding. <laughs> yeah, and so, and then we founded a Celtic Druid order. How odd can you get? Um, <laughs> and then I went on to found White Oak, which is a Celtic Reconstructionist Druid order, which mm. means that we like to study old, genuine Irish material, you know, not not anything else. <laughs> and how can one go about joining White Oak? Because now you have me all curious. Well, whiteoakdruids.org is the website for White Oak. Tribeoftheoak.com is the group for people who want to be initiates. Okey-doke. If you're serious, but it's a lot of work. I mean, this is not, it's not for casual you know, gawking purposes. Uh, if you join Tribe of the Oak, the implication is that you're serious about becoming a Druid initiate, and that means years of study. Most people take at least three years just to do the basic work. So. Well, paganism is also the only religion with homework. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. There's a lot of people who who say, oh, um, you know, I, 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 I have an Irish grandmother, therefore I'm a Druid. Or oh, I, I like to hug trees, therefore I'm a druid. <laughs> I mean, I hear well, this all the time. That's the weird thing, too, because like that was one of the definitions of druid that kind of inspired me to start looking into the whole thing, was the, the idea of conservationist druids. Um, and I think that while the environmental movement has become a very important part of paganism, there's a great deal more that gets overlooked in favor of like new age easy answers and you know sort of half-assed environmentalism and that sort of thing you know which overshadows the core of what it is to have been druid throughout history. Yeah, because to be a druid is to be an expert. You have to be an expert at something. You know, um, Columbus said, Christ is my druid. Um, Christ was his leader, his inspiration, you know, his master. The druid is somebody who spent at least 20 years mastering a subject. It wasn't just somebody who went out and said, oh, I like trees, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you, I, right now, in fact, um, I'm, I'm, tr I'm putting together a, something that I want to write and I've been asking people on Facebook, you know, how do you define Druid? And, I mean, it's all over the map. Oh, God, people... yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I've had people ask me on my blog about the same thing, and I'm like, uh, holy shit. I mean, we could go on 12 different 
definitions of druid that I can think of, and you know. Well, that that co- goes back to my book that's coming out, A Legacy of Druids, um, and the the book really gives you the breadth of all that. I mean, there's nobody in the book who says, I like trees, therefore I'm a druid. There's nobody who does that because these are all druid leaders. You know, they're very thoughtful. But the the different kinds of approaches, you know, you had Tim Sebastian who organized raves, and he was a druid. So he had druidic raves, you know. Um, <laughs> Probably without the glow sticks. I don't know. I'm sh- well. I'm sure there. I'm sure there were glow sticks because he, you know, he had the music and he had everything. And I mean, it's just the breadth of it is just astounding. And then there are all these people who say, "Oh, I'm a nature mystic. I like to walk in the park. Therefore, I'm a druid." You know. <laughs> so, well, and um, I know a lot of people who have um, influences from Buddhism that you know, kind of see druidism as as their path, but it's they tend to be more contemplative, um, sort of Buddhist focused, and they consider them druid. druidic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that too, and it, it's. I I guess it comes down to like sort of the same thing with masons, you know, because there's like the actual craftsmen, you know, who chipped stone and that sort of thing, and then there's the um, contemplative masons who were the guys that became what Freemasonry is today and all that sort of thing. So it's like how much of that really is tied to the, the craft of masonry in, you know, in its original sense. Um, and you also have Masonic Druids. It's true. The, the fraternal ancient order. order of Druids, the ancient order of Druids in America, they're basically Masons. It's Masonic. And Obad got hit, its start as a fraternal Druid order until the 80s when Philip decided, you know, we should well, probably do modern, more. Well, remember, modern Druidism got its kickstart in the 1700s as a fraternal order of ancient Druids. And everything else came out of that. Obad, ADF, uh, RDNA, all of it. I mean, you mean you're talking about England. Do you realize that well, the French, the French have their own lineage? It's true. But it's you know it's it, that's very English what you're saying. And then yeah, and then it came to America. That's true. The um, Gallic countries do tend to have their own traditions of Druidism. It's just that most people don't know about them because. Well, in the book, a legacy of Druids. I actually I have an interview with a French Canadian druid who is in a French order, um, and he I mean it looks completely different than what you're used to when he talks about his beliefs. Uh, I mean you'll see it's totally different. Fascinating. Yes. <laughs> I have to pick that one up now too. Yeah, it's called yeah. A Legacy of Druids, and the publisher is Moon Books, and it's being edited right now, and it should be out in the spring. All right. Now, uh, let me tie it back to the herbalism for just a second. Do you go out and sanctify your your herbs, or do you do the plucking the herb through the right hand sleeve with your left hand or whatever, like they tell you that you have to? No. (laughs) No, uh, that that ritual is just for gathering vervain, I believe, isn't it? That's just for the vervain. Well, and you get a lot of those, like, wild superstitious 
rituals that come for picking certain herbs and it's like um or you could just do it at the time that they grow best you know they're exactly. they're at the height of their vitality or whatever and that's when you pick them and you don't worry about like incorporating more complicated superstitious rituals into it well, I, I'm not. I'm not sure that the word superstition is the correct word because I think what they were doing, it was shamanism, and Maybe. by by creating these intense rituals around the plants, um, then when you give the plant to the client, it's there's much more power behind it. You know, like um, in Vedic medicine, they would sing over the plants. They had specific chants that they did as they gathered plants. Hello? Are you guys still there? Yeah. It's rustling against the mic over on Joy's side. Okay, there's a lot of noise going on. Yeah, but I just wanted to say that uh, I think that that's part of the shamanic tradition because um, Druid healers were uh, expected to be magicians. As, well, I you think know, that's reasonable to say about any healing tradition, really. There's There's ritual that goes along with every healing tradition and that's what gives it its power because um even in modern medicine i mean you wouldn't just take a prescription for pills from someone wearing street clothes right, right. Um, you the expect white, them to be wearing coat. that white coat and you know yep. maybe have a stethoscope in their pocket or whatever otherwise that isn't a real doctor right right you know, and likewise, isn't it interesting isn't it interesting that druids are thought of as wearing white and the doctor sure. is a druid. That's a druid, and they're That's wearing white. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're using the definition of an expert, yes, he is. Well, exactly, huh. and I mean, even Hildegard was given the, the title doctor of the church, and it was referring to her scholarship and her, you know, her training and healing and and all these other things that she was involved with, composing music and and you know, sound healing. I mean, she was into sound healing before most people mm-hmm. had ever heard of it. Yep, and she wrote operas. And she was just amazing. You can actually get um, Ordo Vertutum on, on YouTube, which is a beautiful production. I mean, there's a, a couple of churches that have produced um, enactments of it, and it it's actually best to portrayed, as far as I'm concerned, in the uh, the film Vision um, from the life of Hildegard of Bingen. Oh, which is yeah, I think I saw that. I think I saw that. German Except actress. The, it's, yeah. That the, it, they, it makes her look like a lesbian, though. It kind of, of does. There are scenes that do suggest that sort of... Right, and I'm not sure lesbian. that she was a lesbian, but who knows. <laughs> <laughs> or at least bisexual, to be fair, because she well, had that piece, dude. All right, last question, Ellen. I do want to ask you, you said it's curious about the Druids wearing white, but the tradition, as I understand it in Ireland, is that uh, Druids wore all kinds of colors. That's true. No, I was just trying – well, when they did – when they gathered the mistletoe, they wore white. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, I mean, there's a certain association with the color white. White, you know, white, white dogs with red ears, white bulls that were sacrificed uh, exactly. if they gathered the mistletoe. Um, if you were doing a really serious high ritual, you wore white. That doesn't mean you wore white all the time. In fact, we know that they wore cloaks that were covered with feathers. Yep. Huh. 
feathered cloaks okay, I are, forgot about are the feathers. like shamanic flight cloaks and exactly. You know, I mean, okay. the whole idea of the albino animals, the white ones with red ears and eyes and so on, they all associate to the other world, which, you know, of mm-hmm. course it makes sense that white would be a color of the other world, you know. Um, so gathering the holy mistletoe from the trees that, you know, are presumed to have been planted there from the heavens, um, of course you're going to be going, okay, well, I'm going to wear white now because we're harvesting the sacred mistletoe. And mistletoe has white berries. Yep. And um, mistletoe blooms. It's an amazing plant. It blooms in the middle of winter because unlike every other plant which is oriented to the sun, mistletoe is oriented to the Pleiades. And it blooms when the Pleiades are directly overhead. Think about that for a minute. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, That's why really it blooms cool. in the winter. Yes. Is that where the um, the twelfth of the sixth moon thing comes from? When you're supposed to harvest it? Oh, the sixth night of the moon. Yes. Um, it's it's the okay when you have the dark of the moon. Mm-hmm. Six nights after the dark of the moon is when you first see the sliver of the moon. When you can first see the moon, that's when you gather it. And it makes sense because I mean. It's at that point where the moon isn't entirely in its fullest shining strength, and you can see the Pleiades clearly because they're, you know, stars that are dimmer compared to the moon. Right, So, exactly. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I, I'd never actually thought about it being connected to the Pleiades at all. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ellen. I'm sorry about all the technical glitches, but... Um, do you have any other things you want to say, email addresses, websites, books, anything? Well, you should provide a link to Hildegard of Bingen's opera on your... I, I, I'll i definitely add that there. Okay. Yeah, we'll it's so worth watching. It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and I, you know, if people go to my website, which is ellenevertthopman.com, E-L-L-E-N-E-V as in Victor, E-R-T-H-O-P as in Paul, M-A-N.com, um, they will see all my books. They will see my blog. Uh, you know, they'll know the minute the books, the new books come out. Uh, the new herbal, Secret Medicines from Your Garden, is already available for pre-order, and it would be really nice if a lot of people pre-ordered it. Um, and, uh, you know, the A Legacy of Druids should be out spring 2016, but that'll be on my website the moment it's available. And... Um, Hope to talk to anybody who writes to me. Thank you very much for joining us, Ellen. It's been oh, great. Okay. Thank you very um, much. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a great show. We really appreciate it. Um, okay. Well, if y'all um, are listening to this through iTunes, uh, please come to magicalmusings.net and look for this episode. It's episode 26, uh, 27. 27 on herbalism. Uh, and it's going to have a big link to Ellen's site and her books and such. Uh, don't forget, we are going to be giving away a copy of her um, new uh, herbal book that's coming out. We're going to get her to sign it and, and uh, compensate her for sending it to you guys. So uh, there's going to be a trivia question on the website, and it will be answered somewhere in this episode. So you can take a listen for it. And thank you for tuning in.
Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. If you've listened this far in the podcast, then you know that we're doing a trivia question to give away Ellen Everett Hoffman's book, Secret Medicines from Your Garden. The trivia question can be found at the webpage http colon slash slash magicalmusings.net slash trivia dot html. Please go there and follow the instructions. I also want to apologize for some of the audio issues we had, specifically on my side of things. I was using a new microphone and headset to record this show, and it was not noise-canceling as I couldn't afford to buy a new one after the old one was stolen. Thankfully, donations have made it possible to get a new headset, and there won't be as many issues from now on. Thank you.